You're listening to DevOps and Docker Talk, and I'm your host, Brett Fisher. I'm a cloud-native DevOps course creator, consultant, and manager of this growing community on cloud-native DevOps. This podcast is an edited-down, audio-only version of my YouTube live show, which airs on Thursdays at brett.live. This podcast and all the free stuff I create is made possible by my supporting members. Thank you all so much for your continued patronage. There are well over 100 of you buying me a coffee every month, which makes that just 1% of the people that read, watch, or listen to this content every month. I'm hoping we can double that to 2% this year. And as they say, membership has its privileges. So you can find out how to support this show, my cloud native training, and our DevOps community at brettfisher.com. In this episode, I have the Loft Labs team on again to discuss a new open source project they released called DevPod. Now, you might remember CEO Lucas Gentili and senior developer advocate Rich Burrows, who were on this show last year showing off vCluster, which allows you to run a full Kubernetes cluster inside an existing Kubernetes namespace. I'll just call that nested Kubernetes, and I thought it was a great idea for development or testing clusters. So if you didn't see that vCluster episode last year, definitely check it out. When Rich and Lucas reached out again this year about a new developer tool for containers, it piqued my interest. So in May of 2023, I had them on this show to announce the release of the DevPod. And after seeing some demos, I'm already thinking of how I might use it in my own developer workflow. So please enjoy this discussion of the DevPod project with Lucas and Rich of Loft Labs. Hello, welcome to the show. We're gonna talk about dev environments and I'm excited to get into it because this is a complicated world of lots of tooling and lots of features. There's always a problem with too many tools. And I think that's one of the things you hear me talk about on my show, too many tools. We've got two people you probably have seen here before if you've been here for more than a few minutes. Last year we had on the show, Rich and Lucas, both from Loft Labs. Welcome. Hey, Brian. Great to be back. There's too many dev tools, so we're here to talk to you about a new dev tool. <laughs> I know, right? One, a tool to rule them all. That's part of the challenge of the game, right? Is that we all want unique tools, the Linux Unix way, but we also have too many tools. I think the person that created the concept of the Unix philosophy of one small tool that does one thing well, they didn't have 1500 tools to do their job. We need a new version of that. And of course, I'm a big Docker fan. So like that is a tool that does a lot of things. So obviously I'm a yeah, fan absolutely. of tools that do lots of good stuff. So let me introduce these two real quick because if you haven't seen these gentlemen on the show, we talked about vCluster last year, which is another project that Loft Labs manages, another open source project. It was a great tool. We're not gonna talk about vCluster today, but if you're curious about Kubernetes stuff and you're a developer, this is the team, like you should check out their stuff. It's pretty cool. So there we have Rich. Rich Burrows is the senior developer advocate at Loft Labs and we're not gonna talk too much about Loft today, but I will ask you all in a minute to give me the elevator pitch. The CEO of Loft Labs, we have Lucas Gentili, and I don't even, I didn't even ask, where are you streaming from today, Lucas? Uh, I'm in San Francisco. Okay, and Rich, where are you at? I'm in Portland, Oregon. All right, so we're spanning both coasts. I'm in Virginia, so we're east to west this time on in North America. Real quick, Tell me about Loft Labs. I've seen, uh, we've had you on for other dev tools before that help us manage infrastructure, manage Kubernetes things. So tell me about it. Yeah, essentially there's a lot of new tooling coming out to help teams like platform teams within an organization. And we've really been focused on virtual Kubernetes clusters as one essential building block 
to make these folks' life easier to hand out Kubernetes clusters without handing out heavyweight Kubernetes clusters to everybody because that gets really, really complicated and messy and super, super expensive. So we invented vCluster as an open source technology to create virtual Kubernetes clusters that run inside a pod, essentially. And then you can hand out these containerized, you know, Kubernetes clusters much, much easier. They spin up in a couple of seconds rather than, you know, 45 minutes like, you know, EKS, GKE, et cetera, will take. And then they share the underlying platform stacks. So you need like just one Datadog agent and one open policy agent, right? And all of these tools can run once in a Kubernetes cluster. And then you can launch the virtual clusters on top and they share all of these things, ingress controller, logging, monitoring, all of these things. And it makes it so much easier to maintain and so much cheaper to run, even though you're creating hundreds or even thousands of Kubernetes clusters that you're handing out to your dev teams. So we've spent a lot of time building open source software and then the commercial layer loft on top with vCluster open source project. And we have another open source project, which we just handed over to the CNCF called DevSpace. That's a sandbox project now. Really proud of us making nice. that step as well. Yeah, and we had you on the show last year for one of the open source projects, vCluster, which is clusters and clusters, which when people find this tool out, by the way, they get excited. Like every time I mention it as a potential solution for their problem, they get excited about vCluster. But I also know about DevSpaces and congratulations on that being a sandbox project. That's really nice. But yet again, you're back to talk about, I mean, we're all wearing matching shirts. So maybe we should (laughs) reveal the tool that we're talking about. And thank you for the shirt. I'm a fan of purple. So you picked a good color today. So we're talking about DevPod. (laughs) What's the elevator pitch for DevPod? Why are we here? It's kind of like a code spaces, you know. It works with Microsoft's dev container JSON standard. It works with all different kinds of infrastructure. So that I think that's the big part of it. Some of these options right now for dev containers are managed services. And you have to sign up, you have to pay somebody, all of that. DevPod, think of it as sort of like Terraform, if people are familiar with that. It's, it's, it's got that provider concept that Terraform has. So basically, you can use DevPod to point at whatever infrastructure that you want. So like you could have a local Docker instance and you can run the dev containers there, or you can run them on AWS or wherever that you want. And it basically lets you run these dev containers without having to sign up for some managed service. I like it. You know, I. I've talked a lot about code spaces on this show. Like I think since the first beta early access that I could get into it, I especially before I had my M1. I think <laughs> when I still had the Intel machines and I needed faster d- yeah. development, right? That was one my main that was like the way that I got into remote it's not even remote Kubernetes, right? Because CodeSpaces is really just a VM that they provision for you and then they put a bunch of tools on for you, which is great. But I had this sort of realization that remote environments freed me from my machine. So I was able to use my iPad with VS Code, which is quite frankly awesome now. And then I got into the world of all these other tools that do one or two of these little pieces of that puzzle, right? Like this tool supports dev container JSON, which we're definitely going to get into. This tool runs things in a container and gives me a VS Code web IDE or something similar to that that's not quite VS Code. And it felt like there was always these little pieces of the problem, but often I had to create my own infrastructure if I wanted to do it myself. A lot of my students and people on the show would say, well, I don't, I can't use CodeSpaces as much as I would because maybe I don't have a paid account or my company doesn't allow it. I actually had clients like this that wouldn't allow CodeSpaces because they had their own infrastructure and they wanted to do things themselves. 
and code spaces was an extra expense. It wasn't on their trusted infrastructure. So I always felt like there wasn't, there was a lot of these little pieces to the problem being solved, but ultimately a dev who's trying to manage local stuff, remote stuff, shared stuff between other dev team members. There was never really any tool that I could keep pointing them to. So I guess that's my lead in to say, I'm kind of hoping this is that tool, but I haven't even used it yet. So maybe we should. We're, we're hoping it is too. I mean, a big shout out to our CTO, Fabian Krom, and, you know, he and Lucas designed this thing. And I think it really, I think there are a lot of people out there who are in that situation that you're talking about where they're limited either by like what they can install on their machine or where they're allowed to run things for compliance reasons or just costs, you know, like if somebody's a student and they don't want to pay, you know, get GitHub a certain amount of money a month, you know, I think that it's really great to give people an option to be able to do these things, you know, in a cheaper or even a free way. Yeah. And when I, when you pointed me first to it, I was excited to see a UI because, you know, there's those of us that love the CLI and we're all, we're shell all day, all the time. But I've, we talked about this a few weeks ago that on, just on the live show that my trend has actually been over my career is like, I started with GUIs and Windows went to Linux in the early 2000s and even before that FreeBSD, and it was very shell heavy. And then I kind of lived there through PowerShell and ZSH and Fish, and like we evolved and we got all these great command line tools. And now I actually find in my career that I am, in a lot of ways, I prefer GUIs simply because I don't, this problem with too much tooling, right? Like when you have hundreds of tools and command line options, the challenge is remembering all of the options you need to specify. Like these cloud tools are often challenging at the CLI because I can't remember. Like I'm four or five options deep and I'm like, I have no idea. <laughs> like that's why that's where ChatGPT is going to help us all, right? Is the command line tooling will hopefully <laughs> be a little more self-descriptive. But I do appreciate a good GUI because now I like I use Fork for all my Git stuff. And I was talking about this in the newsletter last week that we all we had this problem in the industry where some people will shame you for wanting to use a GUI. It's like, if you don't use Git at the command line all day long, you're not a true developer. That was actually something that was put out in an article recently that mm -hmm. I really appreciated because it was an honest talk around, look, if you're getting, if you're productive, you're getting the work done, who cares whether you use a GUI or a CLI? It's totally up to you. So I do appreciate having a GUI option. And I was quickly installing this today, this morning and trying to figure it out. So can you speak to that a little bit? Like, why did you choose CLI plus GUI? Yeah, I think, yeah, you know, when I think about Docker, it's super important in Docker to have like a really good CLI and to be able to automate things with it. But I'm using Docker Desktop a lot, right? <laughs> because it's a good tool. Uh, it makes it so much easier to operate things and same counts for our product, Loft, right? There's obviously a CLI for it. It's all Kubernetes API. You can, you know, curl and just send it to, to straight Kubernetes API with HTTP. But in a lot of cases, you just want to get the state of something, see an error, get an overview, make some quick changes. And that's often just so much easier in, in a GUI. So we want it to be as independent and flexible as possible regarding this. So when you install the desktop application, it actually has a simple one-click button to also add the CLI to your path. It ships with the CLI built-in, so you essentially get the best of both worlds. You can use the CLI if you want to, you know, code something on top of DevPod and really like dive deep into the options, debug something, right? It's open source if you want to contribute. That's obviously much, much easier than 
on a desktop application, which some people are not familiar with. This is the first time for us as well, building and shipping a desktop application. There's definitely a lot of things involved in, in, in doing that. And so we're trying to keep it as flexible as possible with desktop and CLI at the same time. I agree with you really strongly that the tool shaming stuff is just bad, right? Like, yeah. like let people work in whatever way that they're comfortable working and where they're going to be productive. Yeah. I, there's a trend in my courses where I get, you know, there's like a 50 to 100 people starting those every day. And the, the I, so I have like this semi-awareness of the seven years of my do original Docker mastery course that I'm proud that it's still going strong. Those people, we're starting to see like a different type of individual adopt some of these container tools that isn't, you know, at this point, if you're just now learning containers, I'm going to sort of classify your organization as a laggard, not in a negative way necessarily, just meaning you don't need to be on the latest stuff. You're not living in the industry and in the tip of the spear ecosystem like all of us are. And that you're now adopting containers because maybe your government, healthcare, whatever. And they tend to, see, I see a lot of them actually asking questions about the UI, while those of us that all learned it a decade ago, we were so stuck with the CLI for so long that you know, old habits die hard, right? Like we're still stuck in that CLI. And I still find myself, I'll bring up the CLI first for Docker, even though I don't need it anymore. And with DevPod, let's talk real quick about what is a use case? Like what is, what problem, what's the primary problem we're trying to solve for developers today? I think it's this repeatable dev environments as code. And I think, you know, Microsoft with their dev container, JSON, developed a pretty awesome standard to, to define these dev environments in your projects. But what's lacking at this point with all the implementations we saw out of there, like there's a lot of folks either building on, on, on the dev container standard or building their own standard, right? <laughs> a lot of folks are trying to solve that problem, but nobody does it in a way that they essentially just ship a client only tool that you can connect to whatever infrastructure you have, right? Because a lot of these tools essentially give you certain free tier, whether that's like code spaces or Gitpod, et cetera, right? It's essentially to design to work with a managed service. And mm -hmm. we thought, how about, you know, like when I think about the success of Docker, it's just like, I can download it, run it on my machine, right? I get containers on my machine. Right. I don't need to have a heavyweight mm -hmm. server-side install that I then connect to with a lightweight client. No, I just like run the daemon on my machine. I run Docker desktop on my machine, right? And I get going there. And we thought, can't we do that in the same way for these dev environments? And yeah, that's essentially what we're doing with with DevPod. Yeah, so, I think that some of the other sorry. some of the other benefits that you get are, you know, I come more from the infrastructure side, you know, very old school ops person. I started off as a sysadmin and did config management and all kinds of things. And I think that what we saw with infrastructure as code is that there were a lot of benefits to that. And a lot of that came from repeatability, like Lucas mentioned, the transparency of being able to look at a Git repo and see everything's there, right? Like, you know, this thing is getting used all the time. So it's not like a five-year-old page on your wiki that you're not sure if it's up to date or not. It's always up to date because it's getting used constantly. And it's super great for onboarding too. Like if you get a new team member, you can just point them at this dev container instead of having to, you know, then go through a whole ton of pain, like getting their laptop set up and all the dependencies installed and those things. Yeah. In fact, when I was looking at this originally, you were showing off this image earlier. And I think one of the things that spoke to me was we have a lot of options for IDEs. And we have now an increasing number of options that connect IDEs to infrastructure. 
but they all presume that you already have the infrastructure. They all presume that you already have the environments and that you're really just like as if the developer's job when they're developing is only to manage their IDE and not the infrastructure itself. I mean, I know that <laughs> the internet tells us all we should be doing platform engineering and that everything should be magical for a dev and that they have should have click button provisioning of all things at all times. But the reality is it's much more complicated than that, right? Like we very few teams have the resources, especially at the smaller end of the spectrum, to be able to create this wonderful bespoke solution for devs. I now have an increasing number of devs that they actually need to do a little bit of development on Intel, and they're on an increasing number of them are on ARM devices, M1s, stuff like that. But they need Intel because some of their components aren't built for that, especially the older. If you have a monolith that's been around a while, I've run into that with Ruby and PHP, where they those tools just aren't in the app packagers for you know ARM. And so more people than before, I feel like, are being forced to use remote infrastructure for development when they were traditionally used to using local machine because of that M1 switch. So I feel like this is a very timely, I mean, you're scratching your own itch, I imagine a little bit here. And one of the questions I had was, okay, how if I'm using, whether it's local or remote infrastructure, how do I port forward? It sounds like that's built in a little bit. Yeah, so most IDEs actually support port forwarding, but we do have a port forwarding inside DevPod as well. So it really depends on what your IDE is directly capable of. If, for example, VS Code, already supports that. We're actually using the VS Code remote Python example here to show people, hey, this is it could work with GitHub code spaces or anything else, right? We didn't make any changes, no configuration needed. We spun it up with DevPod, we connect to it via the IDE, and then VS Code has that SSH connection that is managed by DevPod. And because it already uses this like remote connection tunneling, it looks into your machine and sees like, oh, when ports are being used, right? So literally VS Code is going to prompt you up and say like, hey, it looks like you just started listening on port 9000. Do you want to start port forwarding? And you just hit yes, and it starts port forwarding. For other IDEs who don't support that, DevPort does the port forwarding for it, essentially. Nice. Didn't You had a list of IDEs somewhere, I think. Was Vim on that list? I was trying to remember. Yeah. Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Vim is supported by everything, isn't it? <laughs> you can't release a tool unless it works in Vim, right? Someone yeah. just asked it real quick if oh, it yeah. uses the Microsoft VS Code dev containers features. And yeah, it does. And that's the thing. Since we're using that devcontainer.json, we're totally compatible with all that stuff. It works really great with VS Code. And like you said, I think that we're at a point right now anyway, where that's the ID that's one, you know, there are people who use other things, but it's got so much of the market share and that's why we decided to go with that standard because Microsoft's developed this open standard that a lot of people are using and supporting. Yeah, real quick, let's just make sure that people are aware of that. So the dev container JSON is a file that lives in your code repo, right? And what does that do for a developer? Yeah, it essentially specifies and codifies as a JSON file what your dev environment should look like. So one thing to define there, for example, is if the dev environment should be based on an existing pre-built container and where that our container image is being pulled from, you can also tell it to read a Docker Compose file and that's supposed to make up your dev environment. You can also tell it to build a container based on a Docker file and just point it at that. It's very flexible on how it spins up your environment, but typically you provide it with some kind of way to create a container and then it drops you inside that container. 
yeah, and then customizations where you can also configure certain things in VS Code, like certain required extensions. You can set certain settings, like the Go path, etc. Because a lot of these things, you know, it's not just about Git clone and I open things in VS Code. It's about do I have the right runtime to actually build this Golang binary? Do I have the debugger installed? Do I have all these? Do I have the right linter? There's a lot of things that engineers need today to actually work correctly. And the idea is you should actually put all of this inside that dev container JSON file. And then a tool like DevPod or GitHub Codespaces is just going to read it and spin up that environment for you, ready to code, essentially. So you don't need to do any manual configurations. And that works with your IDE locally, as well as with you know browser-based IDE running like VS Code in a browser tab. Yes, the answer is yes. If you're, if, I'd say to build cloud infrastructure, like the first thing on a, any cloud that I, as a sysadmin, as an operator that I try to build is the servers themselves. Like EC2 on AWS is probably the first skill that you go for, right? Because almost everything you do in a cloud is based on the VMs that you create. At least it's pretty, it's getting to the point now where maybe some companies can do that without ever having to deploy an EC2. But yeah, you want to you know that well. You want to know, which is why when we talk about you know, the skills to learn here as a developer or as a DevOps person, you want to learn like one programming language first and you want to learn one cloud first. And when you learn that cloud, you learn networking, Linux, and then the cloud itself. Let me ask real quick though, when you install this tool, so the general process for this is we install a tool locally, it has a GUI, and it optionally has a command line. I'm gonna make sure I get this right. And I can create these dev environments either locally or remotely. And when I do it remotely, this tool is helping me build that infrastructure, is that right? Yeah, exactly. So you can point it at a remote or local Kubernetes cluster. You can point it at your AWS account. And in AWS, for example, it just creates a VM for you. And then it installs Docker and everything that's needed, injects our client, right? And it's super lightweight. You don't have to do anything. And then if you tear down your dev environment, it's also going to clean up that VM again in your cloud account and everything that it's set up there. But again, like clients can be as lightweight as using your already existing, you know, local Docker daemon, or it can be as heavyweight as spinning up a VM, injecting Docker, and installing the DevPod client, and then spinning things up there. I'm now realizing that, I don't know if you, either one of you remembers Docker Machine, but Docker Machine, while not necessarily a developer tool for development, like it wasn't helping you with setting up development environments. It was this local tool that was installed back in the day with Docker Toolbox, and it was a standalone tool. And one of the things that a lot of people in my community, especially in the Docker community, liked about it was that it would set up VMs in the cloud. Now, those were just servers with nothing on them other than Docker. And that was the only point it was for. It's just to create a VM through the cloud API and then install Docker on it. The problem is that tool only got you part of the way. It was still incredibly useful but it doesn't, it's deprecated. So it doesn't really, it's no longer really being maintained by Docker. I think GitLab or somebody else in the industry, I think is actually kind of taking it over a little bit. I'm trying to think if it was Vagrant or GitLab or something. Anyway, it's kind of in in question about its future, right? Because Docker officially was the maintainer and they no longer support it. So I'm now wondering if this is now, it feels like it potentially could be a replacement if you're focused on development and you need a remote environment, you don't have to manually create it, right? This tool is going to manage that for you, so... Uh, there's essentially two main concepts here. There's workspaces, which are your dev environments, and then there's the providers, which essentially help you connect to different pieces of infrastructure to create these workspaces in. 
And we can also add new providers relatively easily. You can connect it to Kubernetes cluster. All you need is a you know kubeconfig file that points to a cluster and some permissions in that cluster to actually create a, a pod. You can also give it existing SSH credentials if you have a machine running somewhere right in your home lab or you know somewhere else in a cloud provider that may not be supported. And then, of course, there's like the major providers, AWS, Google Cloud, Azure, DigitalOcean. We also added Sivo because they've done some great work in the Kubernetes space. Shout out to them at this point as a K3S hosted solution. And you can also add your custom providers. So you can literally just like Terraform, right? You can write your own provider and connect it to any infra that you want to connect it to. And then depending on which option I select, it's going to ask me a couple of questions. Like if I choose Kubernetes, it's going to ask me which namespace to use inside that cluster to spin up these dev environments, what the disk size should be, you know, you can make some changes to how images are built, if they should be built with BuildKit directly inside this cluster, and a whole bunch of other things, which cluster will use binding into a service account, you know, a couple of security settings as well. The same counts for this AWS provider. And it's essentially loading this config. You can say which region to spin up these VMs, et cetera. There's an interesting setting to also say, reuse the existing VMs, because one really cool thing about DevPod is you can actually launch multiple of these workspaces on the same VM, because we know you don't necessarily work on the, you know, because what you need on the actual VM is you need Docker and you need the DevPod agent that needs to be installed. But spinning up a VM and installing stuff takes a minute or two, right? There's nothing we can do about that, but there's no, no way to make that shorter. So why not reuse that VM to spin up multiple of these workspaces? That's what this option does, and it's enabled by default. So as an individual developer, I could have a single VM in the cloud. This thing provisioned it for me. And then I have one or more workspaces. Can a workspace include one or more repos? Yeah, so typically you would have a dev container JSON in the repo, and then you would create one workspace for that repo. There's a way, I haven't tried that myself, but if you're using the dev container JSON with Docker Compose, I yep. could assume that pulls up multiple repos in the same workspace, but I actually haven't tried that myself. Yeah, I was trying to imagine a simple two repo app where I've got the web front end and the API back end, and I got a database, and how, what would exactly, I, how would I spin that up in a dev pod? And if, is that one workspace? Yeah, if you're essentially using them in the same on the same machine, like if you would use them on Docker locally or you would use them in Kubernetes or in the same VM in AWS, right? They run in the same infra. So if you have two workspaces open and like two IDE windows, right? You have network connectivity between them depending on your infrastructure, right? If it's the same VM, you may you run in the, in two different containers inside Docker, right? So you can essentially use the Docker networking if you're using Kubernetes, you would have two pods, and then you can use cluster internal networking inside Kubernetes to communicate between these two. But we would typically say you have like two IDE windows open to work on two different projects. Yeah. I'm already realizing I, I have, for example, I have like shell scripts that I run, like for example, DigitalOcean, right? And I just, I need a machine on DigitalOcean so I can run some stuff on it. I, and I don't have the repos locally. And I have scripts that will create, you know, DigitalOcean, create the VM through command line, then get into that machine and abstract the shell commands with the horrible shell abstraction, and then get installed, download Git, GitHub's command line tool, get my Git. There's just like a hundred lines of 
code so that I can have a remote machine that's maybe not code spaces or something like that, that has all my repos that I need for that project, that has a connection to VS Code installed. And it feels like this would be a way a way easier approach. <laughs> <laughs> kind of can get rid of some of the make files, right? <laughs> yeah, and I know we're probably, I'm probably skipping ahead, but there is one feature that I really liked was the ability to turn it on and off without having to go to the infrastructure. Cause that's one of the challenges I have is now I have to have another script that's like tear it all down. And maybe I don't want to tear it down. Maybe I just don't want it to be running. How do I, and also there's the challenge of with code spaces, they manage all that for you. But when you're trying to do it yourself, it's like, I don't want to rack up costs on a CPU overnight. So I have to remember at the end of my day to always shut it down, somehow save the disk or, you know, commit to the repo so the machine can be destroyed. So there's this, there's a very heavyweight workflow that I've implemented for my own use. And I'm actually already interested in how could I use this to avoid that heavy and I always forget and it's it, I come in the next morning I'm like great I just got charged another couple of dollars <laughs> for that VM pro tip if you're running a workshop for people and there's 200 in the room and they all need their own machine always remember to shut them down at the end of the night one time I did that <laughs> one time I forgot and 200 machines which were all shell scripted no, no, no. forgot and then the next morning I real or it was like we were in Europe and it was days later and they were still running. I had thousands of dollars of a bill from AWS, and yeah. they took it all, took it away. Like, thank you, AWS. Like, I appreciate you. <laughs> I could have gone, you know, it would have destroyed my my weekend if I knew I had to pay thousands of dollars. And AWS was like, well, this one time we will excuse you that mistake. <laughs> but yeah, this I mean that's a subtly important thing, right? If you're a dev and yeah. you get you can get in trouble for all the dev infrastructure you spun up and you forgot about, and then you over now you're over budget and you know, that's really hard. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the cost topic is a really important one. So we have the AWS provider configured. Technically, you can give it like access keys and credentials. But if you just log in via the AWS CLI, it's just going to reuse the credentials that you already have on your machine because they're like, you know, securely stored, like maybe in your keychain or whatever, wherever that's located. And then you can also have configure additional options to be configured. Like, for example, injecting your Git credentials into each of the workspaces so you can actually commit and push from there, injecting Docker credentials to spin up containers and using Docker Compose inside the workspace. And then regarding the cost, like you said, there's an inactivity timeout in DeathPod. So essentially, when we see no connections, none of these SSH port forwarding, et cetera, connections to the VM, uh, and the VM itself is monitoring itself, right? It essentially is looking at all its incoming connections. That's what the lightweight agent does that we add to the machine. It is going to turn itself off. So if you were on that, you know, course with these 200 students, <laughs> essentially these dev environments would have spun down automatically. And we can see that when we actually create one of these workspaces. One of the good things is also we can switch back and forth between environments. We can just hit the button to quickly open it in VS Code, right? So it establishes that SSH connection and we're in, right? Everything is installed. Our extensions are running, right? Our linter is there, Python version, like everything is, is coded here. And I can immediately get started and actually fire up this application. And if I go back to DevPod, I see all the logs. I see everything that it's doing, injecting a binary, right? running all of these commands. And the great thing is I can have this Python application not just running in Docker. If I need more power, right, I, rec I actually need the cloud power to do something right now or connect to some specific AWS services or test it like in production, I can create the exact same workspace now in AWS. 
I'm just choosing the Python example, but you could literally drop in any, you know, any Git repository here. It doesn't need to be GitHub, can be any Git, Git URL that you have credentials to. If you can Git clone it, then you can also work with it with DevPod because it's just using Git under the hood. You can also use a select folder to just select a folder on your local file system if you already have cloned the project. Either one of those works. And then I can select which provider to use. Using the AWS one, I can switch that to Docker. I can add a new provider. And then I can tell it also which IDE to use to fire this up. I'm using VS Code locally, but we can also start VS Code in the browser, which is actually a fallback option if you don't have VS Code locally. But you can also use any of the IntelliJ, Go, Golang, etc., JetBrains powered IDEs. So if you're firing up this workspace, what it essentially does, it uses our AWS provider to connect to the environment. And then inside there, it's going to it's gonna take a while to actually spin up that VM. It's creating this machine. And you can even see in the machine name that this is a shared machine, right? So by default, we're spinning everything, every workspace up in the same VM that we're creating in AWS to be more cost efficient, right? And to save time. This one is a brand new one. So it's going to take us a little bit to actually inject the agent in there, install Docker in there, and then fire it up. And then once that's done, it will essentially connect us to this environment, just like it did with the local Docker one. And that's really great because we can switch back and forth, right? We can use a local one to save cost whenever that's sufficient. And then we can switch to the AWS powered one when we need a little bit more power. And even if it doesn't have a dev container JSON, the tool would essentially, you know, guess what is best for the project, right? It would look at the project and say like, okay, it looks like Java. I'm going to spin that up, right? And kind of get you going with that. But obviously it's better if you have a dev container JSON where you specify, hey, I want this Python image with this version, right? I want these VS code extensions like spell checker here or some kind of linter or whatever you may need. And you can also predefine certain ports where you're saying, hey, my application is running on these ports. But again, we also watch for ports that you start listening on and then automatically start port forwarding to these. But it's sometimes more helpful to just specify them up front, especially if you're using privileged ports, because you kind of want to tell in this config, like, hey, port 80 should maybe not be port 80 on my local host, it should be port 8080 on my local host. And that's how you would do these things. Also, we have a pre-create command that actually runs pip install already. So all of our dependencies should already be installed as soon as this window opens, and we can immediately fire up the application now. Yeah, I used, just for those that are maybe new to the dev container, Jason, I used to use Compose for a lot of things that maybe Compose wasn't ideal for. And I would work with dev teams, and when I found them, when they discovered the dev container JSON file, they shifted some of the responsibility of sort of dev-specific things that they might have tried to make Compose use. They would move that stuff over to dev container JSON and would be much happier. Not only does it work in code spaces and now this, but it was a little more universal. And I wanted to ask, I know there's a dev container CLI that helps us get started with dev container JSON. You mentioned that this tool can now even if you don't have a dev container, it can sort of figure some of the basics out by what you might have in that repo. Is it something that is that something where it writes a dev container JSON for you, or is it just sort of faking it until you write your own dev container? Yeah, I think it just does it in memory. It looks at the repository and kind of guesstimates the best image, I guess, to spin on for the okay. repository. Obviously, we recommend to have a dev container JSON. And honestly, with you know Microsoft and GitHub obviously pushing what is standard, I think 
a lot of repositories will actually have that going forward because it yeah. will be, I think it already is like a two click setup in GitHub right now where, right. You, where it also kind of guesstimates it. But then obviously you have a declarative file where you can make changes, which is very neat. Yeah, I mean, the fact that we could take these demos that Microsoft has, these example repos that they've created and just pull these into DevPod and they work, I think is, you know, pretty powerful and shows that like, as these files show up in, in more places that it'll be really easy to use these tools. Nice. All right. So now I've got my remote environments. I'm I got my editor open. I'm making code changes. Right. And so you mentioned that it also, it's also cloning down the repo, right? So it's already, it's got the Correct. GitHub token or whatever it needs to get that repo. Yep. And then when it's time for me to take a break at lunch, and I want this then machine to like go to sleep. Yeah, you would close the uh, EE or just like turn off your laptop, right? Either way, you're like your connections are going to go away. And we should see this, this status running. And I think in the provider, we configured five minutes as a timeout here. So in five minutes, we'll see this workspace actually go into sleep. While that happens, we can also look into AWS. We see the state here as well. We can see the instance type, right? And, uh, you know, this is essentially, I think it's also tagged with DevPod or it has a security group, DevPod. So you can clearly identify which ones are your DevPod instances. You could also spin up different VMs by essentially switching your region or creating, you know, three different AWS providers and name them like as US East 1, US East 2, et cetera. Yeah, that's essentially how that looks under the hood. Yeah. When it pauses, it's not, is it deleting the machine? It's not deleting the machine or when it sleeps. No, it's actually just shutting it down. Yeah. So okay. the machine is not running. So I think you're built for the disk storage, right? Because, you know, the state is persisted, which is what you want, right? If we would delete the machine, we would have to set it up again. And when I opened it for the first time, it took about like two minutes to set up that machine and actually open up the environment. If I would do it now, it would be much, much quicker because the machine is already running in there. But even if the machine is stopped, right? Just starting it and then connecting is much, much faster than having to set it up from scratch every time. And disk storage is super cheap compared to actually running these VMs. Yeah, that sounds similar of a lot of some of the other hosted platform, pro, you know, like you can chew up the CPU and memory while you're using it, but then it goes to sleep. I love, I mean, I, honestly, I sleep, there's so much stuff like, you know, the local Docker desktop, I sleep that thing constantly all day long. You know, whatever I'm running, anything like that, I'm always very CPU and memory sensitive, I guess I should say, and cost sensitive. So I'm always trying to figure out how do I sleep these things. And I don't ha I don't even have my own for all these other things, like for code server, get pot, all these other things I have, I don't really have a method to sleep. Like there's, I don't have that option of let's remove, let's shut this thing down without having to go to this GUI. So then I have to make my own tooling for AWS CLI or DigitalOcean CLI. So I'm glad you I'm glad in what version are we on? Point, point 0.1 or whatever of this release, yeah. <laughs> this yeah, initial right. release, whatever it is. I think we're uh, zero, one, two at this point. <laughs> zero, one, two. Perfect. Yeah. I mean, it's cool that you already have that built in out of the box with that. Cause that, that feels like a feature for me that I, if you didn't have it, I would be putting that on the wish list. I mean, like you said, you know, you just can't count on people to remember 
to shut stuff down, right? Yeah. It's just not going to happen. We, we don't, we all work virtually. I think the th- I'm assuming the three of us work virtually mostly, but you know, we used to have the drive-bys, I would call them right in the physical office. And we don't really get those in virtual anymore, but you know, whether it's the USPS guy at the front door or whatever, the dog needs a walk. I'm always thinking I'll be right back. And then I'm not back. Like at the end of the, rarely at the end of the day, am I planning to not come back? And she's like, I'll be back later for that. And then, so yeah, so, so things are running constantly. I have some demos that if I remember correctly, they were running in .NET and they would consume all of a single CPU as a feature. And I would constantly forget those things. And on my old Intel laptop, I would come back in the morning and it was like an oven. It was just super hot and because <laughs> it had been maxing CPUs all night long. Anyway, so so we can pause. When we come back, it presumably comes right back up or you can do it. I could manually do it. If I don't, yes, is that an option? Just stop it. You can also delete it to clean up the workspace. So if you have a shared VM and it has like three workspaces, if you're just deleting the workspace, it would just delete the containers from the workspace. If you're stopping it, it would just stop the container inside the VM, but it would not clean up the VM because there's two other workspaces running on there. And only if the last one gets deleted or the last one goes to sleep, then the VM actually turns off, which makes sense, right? If you have multiple running and you're just coding in one of them, but the two others you don't touch, obviously they shouldn't kick you out out of your programming session. Hey, there was a question. Someone had asked about Windows containers, and I know there's a Windows client, so I'm assuming that works, Lucas? That is a good question. So we do have a client for Windows, the both variations like Intel and the M1, M2, Max, the ARM Max. We support Linux. We have five different versions, like App Image, the RPMs, the DEB for the Debian folks, and like pretty much any kind of Linux distro is supported as well. But I'm not sure if we actually can run the containers as Windows containers. We always get some Windows container fans. Like we have, so this show, we have Swarm fans and we have Windows container fans. We cultivate the edge cases of everyone in the container ecosystem. So you're all welcome. You're all welcome to be here. So obviously we can delete that. We talked about dev container that Jason is, that's the standard you're adhering to. Does dev pod have its own config file that you can write? Like I'm just thinking about the GUI settings and can I, is it possible to pass those GUI settings between devs? in a team or you know, how do I use the shell command line tool in a way that doesn't require me to do everything manually? Um, yeah, so we don't have a config file. We intentionally just build on the dev container, Jason. Okay. I think in the future, we're probably gonna have things like where you can configure certain things with an end file, right? Or local environment variables. In a lot of cases, it's actually more like personal, like it, mo- most sure. things you wanna have in the dev container, Jason. But then you may want to have like personal overrides for things like, oh, I want the dark theme and I like to like work in the lighter, right? And those things, you know, may actually live better on your machine as environment variables. But we haven't fully decided that the next step for us to to actually work on. There's another feature I just quickly wanted to mention. You can rebuild the container as well. So if you're saying, hey, I messed something up with my workspace, right? (laughs) Something's not working anymore, right? And I just want to set it up from the original Git source repository. You can just hit rebuild and it's going to destroy your your container or multiple containers if you're using the Docker Compose setup and then essentially spin up everything from scratch again. And what Rich said earlier as well is interesting. If you want to open it in the browser, that's also not a problem. You can just open everything in VS Code in the browser if you don't have it. Like, let's say you're actually one of the folks that is using Goland or any of the other JetBrains IDEs, and you're maintaining the DevPod setup, 
and someone says, hey, there's an issue with, you know, with this on VS Code, and, but you don't want to install it directly, <laughs> this is the easiest way for you to test that. And obviously for folks that just want to quickly get started with any kind of repository on the web, right? They can just spin it up in the browser and it's going to be the exact same experience connected to that remote environment already. Pretty straightforward. Yeah, and you set the default IDE that you want to use like in the workspace, but then you can override that through the menus. Yeah. All right, we had a question on combining dev containers without having to create one. So the question is, can you combine dev containers without having to create one? For example, you have one with Python and one with Rust, and you would need both of them to create a new one. Yeah, I think you would use a Docker Compose setup in your dev container JSON to do that. Another way would be just to have two different, like it depends, like if there are two different repos and you want to code in them directly and they need different tooling, right? Because they have different languages like you, you were outlining. It's probably actually best to have two different dev container JSONs that for the respective project. And then use like internal networking within the VM or within the Kubernetes cluster, you know, cluster internal DNS, for example, for Kubernetes or in the VMs, essentially, uh, it would be the Docker networking or your local Docker, it would also be the Docker networking that you can use. So the, all the examples you have, those are single repo examples, right? Yes, that's the one we have in the getting yeah, started yeah, those, guides yeah. here. Yeah, exactly. Those are all single repo, but it's a good idea. We should probably add a multi-repo one. That's a good suggestion. Yeah, that would be fun. Yeah, I would. I recommend the, either the voting app. <laughs> I'm partial <laughs> the Docker voting app that I always use because I'm sitting here thinking how because that's a, a popular one in the Docker community that we still maintain that has a front end, a back end, and a database. And it's a nice example of you usually need a database or some sort of Redis, but you also need usually one or two at least minimum situations. And I think we even have a dev JSON in there. So I'm already curious if I can, if I go and try to run that. How close am I to it automatically working in DevPod for me today? Cause I'm, I, I spend like a couple of days, like a day a month maintaining that repo with some of the Docker team. So I'm gonna check that out. All right, what else, what else are we missing? Is there anything else we haven't covered? Maybe one feature, there's actually this little clock which shows you notifications if something, you know, has been started or stopped or something is wrong with your environment. So you're always up to date on like, hey, did the auto start, the auto stop actually turned us off? <laughs> when did the workspace get started? We do have like issues as well, right? You can dive in and you can say, oh yeah, I revoked the AWS credentials and just wanted to see what happens here. Request expired in this case. We couldn't use the credentials anymore. And that always brings me to the logs of the respective containers. So everything is stored on your machine as logs as well, pretty straightforward. And we do also have an auto-update mechanism for the desktop app. So every time you launch the desktop app, it's actually going to check, hey, is there a new version to quickly upgrade you to, to the next version? And we're trying, obviously, since the dev container JSON standard hopefully is not going to introduce any major breaking changes, we should be super downward compatible as well regarding any DevPod features. Very cool. I'm, Docker has a new feature called Docker init that allows you, it basically starts to create a Docker file, which I feel like we should have had eight years ago, but never mind that. Uh, it's a new feature in 2023 that helps create a project, like it looks at your project and helps you create a Docker file, right? So I'm sitting here thinking as a greenfield project, right? When I start up something fresh, what are the orders that we all do things? We all have our own habits of like, well, I'm going to create the repo first. Well, you have to have a name for the product. Of course, that's always the first thing. And then you create the repos. And then for me, I always am like, well, okay, the app team is going to, maybe they're going to, either if I'm not the app person, that they're going to create their package JSON or the requirements 
text or their Maven file, or their gym file, whatever they got for their package themselves, I'm going to focus, I'm going to immediately go and think about infrastructure because of my ops brain. I'm going to think, well, I want a Docker file. I'm going to push off Kubernetes for later. The next thing I usually want is some GitHub action stuff in there and then a dev JSON file. So I'll use the, I'll either copy and paste a previous JSON file or use the VS code itself to do it, or I'll use the command line or some method to get that dev JSON file. And now I'm realizing as soon as I have that, I can now spin up the environment not just locally, but anywhere. And it doesn't even have to be on GitHub for me to do that. Because we end up with a lot of people that love GitLab, like a lot of GitLab fans and a lot of, and GitT, a whole bunch of other alternatives to GitHub. So code spaces isn't always their ball of wax. And I'm realizing that now that DevJSON doesn't just help them with VS Code, because that's how I got introduced to DevJSON was, right? Was because I was using VS Code and that came out. So now I'm realizing, okay, that file now becomes even more important because now... I could help them build environments if they were, if I could recommend the DevPod URL or the link, the button, whatever you want to call that thing, the open button. And that helps them not just with the Docker stuff and the IDE stuff, but also can help them with the environment stuff of getting that project set up. I mean, that's a crucial part, I feel like, of open source is helping people join your community of your open source project and helping them get started faster. And this feels like it could be part of that base toolkit. It works with local repositories too. Yeah. So if you have like, you know, a clone of your fork locally, you could point it at that. It's super flexible. You could do all kinds of stuff. I was just going to say, when you use this DevPod SH open link, right? And you put it in your repos for people to quickly, you know, fire up your repo. We kind of copied the trick that Zoom is using, right? If you don't have the Zoom client that shows you this page of, hey, download it. And then, you know, click this button to actually open it. Or you can launch in the browser. Unfortunately, we can't do the launch in the browser thing because DevPod's got to run somewhere. And since we're not a managed yeah. service, we're not running it for you. But it makes it super straightforward to add that DevPod open link uh, to any repository without actually having to tell people in the readme, hey, you got to install this, right? It's automatically going to do oh, that nice. once they hit that link. Yeah, that I can see that being a stumbling block. And this is all released today, right? So the next thing was, okay, how do people get it? The website is devpod.sh. It's also below. Just scroll down in the description. But you have the website. You have the GitHub repo. So this is open, fully open source. So pull requests welcome, I'm assuming. <laughs> PRs welcome. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's Mozilla licensed. And oh, if you go to devpod.sh, that's got links to like the docs and the GitHub right there. And there's also a button for joining our Slack. So if you have more questions, then you can get answered through the docs. We have a really helpful community Slack that's got channels for our different open source projects. And there's one in there, you know, for DevPod. Nice. And I've already downloaded and installed it and started playing with it. So it does exist. It is a real thing. What's next? I guess always like the last question I ask. What's next? Do you have any ideas for other than now that you've launched? What are the thoughts? I think it's with any open source projects, we're looking for feedback, right? Because I think we have some ideas on things that additionally could be on the roadmap. I think I mentioned to you earlier, like we actually a couple of days build in like pre-builds for these environments, which is even going to make spinning up images and launching these containers to create your workspaces even faster. But yeah, obviously we have a ton of other ideas, but we actually want to hear from folks first what they need to make this experience even better. Because it's, I think that's the beauty of open source, right? You get a ton of feedback and you actually see what really matters and what moves the needle for people and improve their experience. So I hope there will be a ton of input over the next couple of days. Yeah, I have a prediction. I think the local Docker option is going to be really, really huge for people, you know, because yeah. if you think of 
folks who don't want to sign up for a managed service. They don't want to bust out their credit card. They don't want to rack up AWS credits or anything like that. Just being able to run stuff locally like that too is is fantastic. And you could, you know, you could have a local Kubernetes cluster endpoint in at that too. But I, I think that like the local Docker will make a lot of sense for a lot of use cases. I mean, I have a whole course called Docker for Node.js that's basically in, I mean, many hours tries to explain this thing, <laughs> like doing it yourself. It is not easy to necessarily move your dev environment into a container, especially before DevJSON, which is when that course was created. And, and this tooling is all making it it's making it as easy as it should have always been all along. I think we had a lot of barriers to entry for people that were trying to use containers for dev. In fact, just this year, Docker Compose now has the ability to sync files into the container. And now I'm wondering, okay, how can I integrate that with the dev JSON stuff? Because I'm now realizing that if the container's remote, the Docker Compose may not work as the way I say. But anyway, I'm, I'm thinking out loud. We're gonna, <laughs> we're gonna, I'm gonna shift this to the GitHub issues when I submit my feedback to y'all. We had a couple quick questions before we wrap it up. Do you know if it's possible at all to set CPU and memory limits for dev containers? I think you can, at least in the Kubernetes one. I'm not sure about the general dev container spec. I did look at the spec, and there was nothing in the dev container spec around resource control. At least nothing yeah. I can find. You can size the VMs, right? So that's one yeah, way. Yeah, you, <laughs> yeah, you can pick the right size for the VMs, but that's more on the, that's the provider config rather than the dev container JSON. And then there's for the Docker provider, it's the same. I think we're exposing, you know, memory limits and requests that you can set in Kubernetes. But again, it's more on the provider level. It's less on the actual workspace level. One thing that we want to introduce is that you can customize things for each workspace because right now you define it on one provider. And then it's the same for all the workspaces you create with that provider. That provider, yeah. And yeah, you can, you may want to tweak that. Like you want to have a beefier machine for you know one of your uh, projects and then a more lightweight machine for another project and being able to adjust that on the fly. Yeah, we already put that on the roadmap, but we suspect that yeah. would be like a big feature request to come yeah. up as well pretty quickly. Yeah, it feels like you might end up with a config file, <laughs> which, is <great. laughs> we may. which is great. But yeah. We're uh, trying to prevent it right now, but we may. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, you can try so hard. As, yeah, if the other configs don't have the option, if the dev container doesn't have it, it's like at some point, it's like, let's make a config. That would yeah. be an option, have a section about resource requirements, and then we could pause those. Yeah, I'm not sure how we haven't contributed back to the standard, right? Yeah. But that dev container JSON obviously is still in the early days, I think. So hopefully there will be some flexibility to expand that as well. Yeah. Do you collect any opt-in telemetry in the tooling? Yes, we have opt-in telemetry right now. It's similar to Docker, where when you download the tool, it's on by default, but you can just like select in the settings to turn it off. It essentially just tells us when did you spin up a workspace, when did you turn it off, when did you add a provider, which providers did you add. So we yeah. kind of know are people majority using Docker Desktop locally or they're using AWS. We're obviously super curious on getting these these stats. Or do they create you know fifty of these workspaces <laughs> in the first day? Or does everyone yeah. just has two? Obviously, that's really interesting for us. If my prediction comes true or not, we'll be able to verify that with real data. <laughs> Your money's on Docker, local Docker. Yeah, I mean, I think I would prefer, I would recommend that to you. Like, it's probably the simplest configs, but the, I wouldn't underestimate the local Kubernetes either. Like, I've got a lot of people that are trying to figure out. There's a natural inclination that we all have of like, well, now that I've got my dev environment in Docker, now that we're using Kubernetes in production, I have this desire that's just, we, it's like humans. We just can't, even though I know how many times I tell people, 
Like you don't need to develop on Kubernetes. It's not what it was made for. Like your dev and your production will always be different, but people still want to do it anyway. So we've got all these tools now in the industry and they've all, half of them have been on this show at some point to talk about the dev environments on Kubernetes. And we talked about that on the V cluster episode <laughs> on dev environments and Kubernetes. Yeah. So this is a, th- another step in that. And I think that my guess is the local Kubernetes is number two. If I get to put my money into the pool, yeah, that's my, I'm going to bet on number two, not on number one. How much are you betting? A whole dollar. Wait, no, I'm going to bet a beer at the vendor booth crawl at the next KubeCon, (laughs) which cost me nothing. Which, yeah, those are free. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was great to talk about all this stuff. So we know how people get started. I mentioned it in the chat. It's at devpod.sh. It's also on GitHub. And like I said, you know, if people think of questions afterwards, please feel free to come to that Slack. It's a really helpful place yeah. to, to, we have really strong community members and yeah, it's a good group of folks there. So a community Slack, you're also, there's also now DevPod on Twitter, DevPod SH on Twitter or underscore SH, I think. Yeah, and, underscore. Yeah. And Loft Labs now has a YouTube channel. You can go check. You'll have videos up there eventually. And then I just, we didn't mention this earlier, but this is, this GUI is available I mean, on day one, it's available on Mac, Intel, Mac, Silicon, Windows, presumably 10 and 11, Linux GUIs. So Linux, so it has a Linux install. Did I, did we mention that it's, is it Intel and ARM on Linux? Yes. Yes. I think we have different options for it as well. Also the popular package managers for Debian, RPM. That's right. You did mention that. Yeah. Yeah. A yeah, whole bunch of providers that the team spend a lot of time to make yeah. this like as cross-platform as possible. Thank you so much to the engineering team who's been cranking on this so hard. You know, we mentioned Fabian, the CTO, and a lot of this was his brainchild, but we've got a really fantastic group of engineers at the company and they've really been pushing hard to get this out the door. So, yeah. Yeah, and to get the binary size down and everything, I think we're like <laughs> under 30 MB now and everybody's Ooh. super hyped about that. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty quickly. <laughs> IDE binaries aren't always small. That is true. Someone's asking about DevPod, would it be possible to containerize the whole platform? I'm going to assume that you're not talking about production because this, should we make the disclaimer, this is not a production deployment tool? Yeah, no, definitely. Do not deploy your production <laughs> after this. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot better tools to do that with. <laughs> yeah, but it, I mean, we, what we've been talking about is like, yes, you can have multiple repos. You can have a compose file. You can have multiple dev JSONs. You can have multiple environments. I can imagine someone, eventually this can get complicated enough where I can be running something locally, but then running a whole bunch else remotely. I know that people that run microservices, of course, if, if Kelsey Hightower was here, he would probably say, if you have to run all your microservices in order to develop on one, then you're just, you're, all you're creating is a distributed monolith. I agree <laughs> with that. So, but if you need to run stuff remotely, but you also maybe want to dev, dev locally, I can see there's a scenario where someone's going to put that ticket in. I don't even know if that's even possible, but a lot of this tooling is making it to where we almost have, okay, maybe we need to come up with a new term, dev mesh. Like <laughs> my environment for development is everywhere. It's some local, some remote, some in the cloud. It's dev mesh. Maybe maybe that's like the superset of V cluster plus dev pod plus dev spaces. Maybe that's I don't know. I'm making. I could I'm see that being a buzzword. Yeah, that that's the next buzzword. Dip, dips on that. I'm one. I'm thinking of the guys. galaxy brain 
meme, you know, and like at the end, it's like <laughs> deathmatch. Um, yeah. Oh, and also the hacker, hacker guy or, ha or whatever, like the one with all the, we have all of our matrix screens and we all just assume it. it's using all the servers, right? Because they, they always have like a dev, they have an entire data center as their cluster in front of them when they're hacking on, on the movies. So maybe that's the dev mesh. To loop back to kind of where we started, you know, with this idea of there being so many tools and it being hard to do things. I think that's true to a certain extent, but I think that like, if I look back in my career to what things were like in the early 2000s, I was working with Java engineers, you know, and somebody would come in and you hire and they'd get handed a laptop and it would take them a week or maybe even longer to get their environment installed and configured and get all their services running locally. And it was just brutal. And like I said earlier, there were issues with like, you know, is this wiki up to date? You know, it was updated two years ago. Is this really what I should be doing? And the fact that now we have this kind of class of tools that allow us to automate the creation of the environments themselves, I think is a really huge step forward. Yeah, and especially connecting the infrastructure and the local stuff, I think is what I'm really excited about too, because I often that's where the dev tooling stops. It's like, well, go set up the infrastructure and come back. And then you will tell you how to install this dev tool somewhere or whatever. And that's always a rough area because it now presumes that, oh, as a developer, I know one, I have access to infrastructure in the cloud. And two, you know, you didn't list all the clouds there, but you have a lot of them on day one. Like digital, I saw DigitalOcean, I saw AWS, I think I saw Azure. And, you know, having all the big clouds in there, I know some, I know we have some Germany fans that are probably going to ask for, is it Hertzner? Hertz, I always forget yes. that one. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I think Varian, our CTO, has already started working on that one. Okay. He's like, that's okay. so cheap. We got to run stuff there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We got Sivo on there, another cheap Kubernetes alternative, cheaper Kubernetes alternative. Shout out to the Sivo people. I think that was the last time I saw Rich in the real world. We were both at, at Sivo Navigate. Oh, yeah. Florida. Well, this is great. I want to thank you both. There's not a lot of tooling that I download before this. Like I have a lot of people on this show and I don't install a lot of the tools before the show even is over. But this is one that I did that because I think this is my jam. So, well, you're somebody that we respect a lot. And um, I think that Lucas and I have both been really excited to kind of see your reaction to this, you know, see like, yeah. what your take was. I can't yeah. wait for you to open the first issue. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, for I hope the it's not a bug, of... but more of a feature request. <laughs> Sorry for all. I'm, yeah, I'm going to make. No, I'm not going to change any of the code. I'm going to make nothing but requests and not give anything back. So, hey, that's contributing too. I'm contributing to the pile of things to on your to do list. Um, well, again, thanks everybody in chat for being here on this special Tuesday. We we tend to focus on containers, and this is like that 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 perfect little jam of it's dev and containers. It's all in one. Um, and and there's not a lot of tooling out there that does that focuses on both. So this is a perfect match for this. We'll see you. Thanks everyone. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode. <laughs>